Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, in our new issue, we take a look at 100 stars who started their career in soaps. And the list is totally astounding. I mean, first of all, kudos to you who put the bulk of it together. Um, But it's really incredible how many big names on the list, you know, came from the 70s and 80s, from like James Earl Jones to Morgan Freeman to Tommy Lee Jones to Meg Ryan. And then you have a slew of current stars, you know, Kelly Ripa, Shamar Moore, Justin Hartley, who all have early soap credits on their resume. And, you know, I think soaps so often get a bad rap for not having like a certain caliber of talent. And really, it could not be further from the truth. And this list totally proves that. You know, as a side note, uh, a lot of the more established names on that list also really underscored to me what a loss it is not to have any New York-based soaps anymore. Because particularly in the early days of soaps, the shows really managed to pull in a lot of extraordinarily talented actors who were in New York in pursuit of work in the theater and on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Uh, The shooting schedule of daytime allowed actors to be in the studio during the day and on stage at night. And uh, this list that we put together boasts people who have Tony Awards, Primetime Emmys, and Oscars to their name. Uh, Even in the final years of the New York shows, a lot of superb talent emerged there from Michael B. Jordan, who was Reggie on All My Children and is a superstar now with Creed and Black Panther, to Jesse Soffer and Billy Magnuson from Mm -hmm. As the World Turns. Jesse, who played Will, now stars on Chicago PD, and Billy, who played Casey, has himself been nominated for a Tony. Um, But I've always felt sort of like a sense of pride when someone makes it big when we as soap fans knew them first. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I definitely feel that way. I mean, look at Jensen Ackles, whose first big role was his days as Eric, and now is the star of the, like, uber-successful Supernatural on the CW and has a rabid fan following around the world. You know, that couldn't make me happier. Um, You know, we talked about Kelly Ripa, and then there's Mark Consuelos, and I remember Kelly holding court after one of the Soap Opera Digest Awards and just, like, telling such funny stories. You know, she was such a natural, and I can really say it came as no surprise to anyone who ever interacted with her that she was tapped to be the host of Live. You know, I will say that it's kind of interesting that you don't see as many actors these days transitioning. I do not think that it's a comment at all on the talent because there are many actors who I could see in movies or primetime. But I think the jobs are just really harder to get now. I think that's true. The, you know, the traditional casting model for both television and movies has really been upended uh, by everything from changes in technology, like so many auditions going from being in a in an actual room mm-hmm. uh, to being done by a video, uh, to streaming services, to the rise of reality TV and specialized cable networks that offer alternatives to scripted programming. It, it's tough out there. It's it's always been tough out there, but it's like tough in a different way than it used to be. So I do think. Uh, a lot of actors who have a coveted steady gig in daytime are loath to give it up to risk their livelihood to see what else is out there. And we're also seeing uh, a flow in the other direction, right, where actors who have been successful in other fields who may not have considered a soap gig 20 years ago are now doing so, like uh, a Denise Richards or a Wayne Brady coming to B&B. Yeah, and, you know, I'm always struck by the reaction that those stars who never did soaps but who have done other mediums have when they come to soaps. I mean, the work is no joke. They're shooting, you know, sometimes eight episodes in five days, and you really have to be on your game. Um, you know, Tisha Campbell, who recently filmed on B&B, told us that she was so excited to do soaps because she had never done them before and has now basically told everyone she knows about how good the actors are and about how challenging 
challenging the gig is, you know? And then it's funny because then the other way, when actors leave soaps, they tell us that filming like a few pages a day is hard in its own way because they're so used to working at a certain level and discipline. Yeah, related to that, we also hear from actors who've been away from daytime that it's sort of a shock when they come back and are reminded of just how quickly it moves. Mm-hmm. Like I just had that conversation with uh, Jeffrey Vincent Paris, who's joined YNR, and um, our guest today, Michael E. Knight, who was on All My Children for decades as Tad, quite successfully, might I add, with three daytime Emmys to his name, said that he was totally intimidated when he got his first GH script for his new role, Martin, because along with the script comes the schedule for the day. And that piece of paper literally tells you in black and white all the items that are being shot in that one day. And it kind of drives home how much there is to accomplish and how critical it is that you know your lines and be ready to go when it's time for your first and, um, you know, your bosses hope your only take. Yeah, I mean, it must be intimidating no matter how how many Emmys you have and no matter how (laughs) good you are, which he certainly is. So let's get him on the phone to hear more about it and his past on All My Children and more. Hi, Michael. Hey. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, we are so excited to talk to you today, and we are going to start by taking a walk down memory lane to your very first daytime role. Great. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty boring person, I have to admit. So, um, <laughs> oh, we don't believe that. At this point, General Hospital sort of uh, isn't is anybody's guess. It's, 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 it's fun. It's great. It's been very surprising. Um, but, you know, definitely memory lane is my strong suit at this point. <laughs> okay. Well, then let's go back to 1982 when you were cast on All My Children fresh out of school. So first of all, tell us how you got the role of Tad. Uh, it was just, I think it was, uh, at, at that point, it was an open call. I was um, out of, uh, I'd gone to a conservatory in New York for a couple of years, a circle and a square, and I was working with a, a very small agency um, doing commercial work. And I think that uh, um, it literally was one of those things where they had a double-sided desk in the middle of the office, and there was, um, in those days, I mean, we had, we had some film, but not a lot. It was it basically, we had a tremendous amount of commercial work, especially for young actors. We had um, commercial work, we had theater, and we had soap opera. And the, the, the woman that uh, handled uh, television sat directly across from one of the commercial agents. It was the Joan White Agency. And they don't exist anymore. Joan passed away years ago. Um, and they had an open call. And those days, I think, uh, it, it, it was sort of the for the fans of the show was goes back to sort of uh, Cliff and Nina, Greg and Jenny, that kind of period. And they, they needed, uh, they were recasting the brother of Jenny Gardner. And I think they were make, he'd gone from being a younger brother to an older brother. And it was just sort of an open call. And I remember going through the process and then it's like, Oh, it's going really well. And they're going to screen test you for the show. And those days they actually did that. They had, they bring in like six, seven guys. And you would do, uh, you would work with different people. I remember mine was with both Kim and and uh, uh, Marcy Walker, and uh, but they put everything on hold. They they and at that point I thought, okay, this is this way of their way of saying, don't call us, we'll call you. But uh, and they really did it, and they called us. And they, I, I think they called me back. God, it was the winter. It was cold. I remember that. Um, uh, nineteen eighty two. I think it was like in the very beginning of December, I got cast. I think the date I did was December, I don't know, 15th to 20th around there. And then, uh, but I, my first air date was in 83, it was in January. Well, that is certainly when I was watching. I will tell you, I remember you coming to the show <laughs> oh, really? quite vividly. Okay. Yes. I got, yeah, it, that was my first show. Uh, people, you know, people, it, yeah, I, I, it's it's amazing the, the pull that it has because, um, and it's, it's only, it's gotten more sort of eccentric as, as, as I go along because you meet people that for some reason watch the show for different reasons, but they, they always, it, the, the amazing thing is people always remember where they were in their lives and why they got into it. Like you meet people, it's like, Oh, my grandmother got me into, or we were in college and we used to watch, or I was in the hospital. I had an accident or I was like, I had my first kid and you know, I got, and they can tell you exactly the storyline that they, that sort of roped them into the show. And, so it's amazing to see how specific it is. And I think that's part of the, that's why, that's the one thing I think people always uh, underrate 
about the soaps is that we're all we're we're very easy to make fun of because there's seven basic stories and then and um Aggie used to say there's you know seven basic stories everything is a variation on a theme and there's just so many times that you know <laughs> you can you can uh, marry the same woman or your children will be stolen by gypsies or something you know kind of or you have amnesia but uh, for some reason people it, it, it has this very sort of familial tactile kind of uh, uh, re, uh people have this really very strong um reaction to it and it, it draws them back to a very very specific um part of their life and they're they're always really really kind about it so gracious and i think that's part of the reason why they keep up a dinosaur like me around you know because <laughs> i mean we're going around i mean i was stunned by what happened with gh because i have to say that it's all, all credit goes to Frank and to, to Dan and Chris, because I mean, I called Frank. I mean, I was like, I, I wanted to work. I needed to work I'm bored. And if, if you've got anything, and he went to those, to Dan and Chris and he said, well, you know, we've got this lawyer. You want to come do that? And, um, I was blown away that, that there was a sort of a, a fan reaction that these sort of, <laughs> you know, my children was what, 90, I, I Mara, I, I've asked you this before. Eight, like, eight years in September was the anniversary. Eight years ago. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. I always I go around and around about this because like, I forget the move. I, I mean, I think the move was in December of '09 or '10, mm-hmm. but I mean, it was a long time ago. So I mean, uh, I'm amazed and, and honored that there's, like I say, the fans are always they're always the thing that people underestimate, and but they're the most wonderful thing about the job because. You're just in, it's just an incredibly unique audience. I don't know how to describe it, but it's like the fact that they would go, "Oh, Michael Knight's still alive!" <laughs> you know, it's like, "Yeah, oh look, oh my God!" You know, they, they give you a chance after I don't know many too many actors in other parts of the business that can say, "Hey, you know, I really would like to work. Is there anything available?" And because of the audiences out there, like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we got this. You know, we got a lawyer for you," and that's sort of the way this thing evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I know Steph was watching All My Children when you first started. I started watching. I remember like basically my my first episode had to do with like Tad and Dixie preparing to get married. So it's totally true. You remember exactly oh. like when you started. But I was aware even then of this like iconic Tad, Liza, Marion storyline. Um, yeah. So Tad sleeping with mother and, and daughter – it, and daughter, yeah. Do you remember, like, feeling at the time, like, wow, this is a hit, or were you too new to kind of recognize maybe that it's kind of rare that your first big story is going to end up being such a smash? Uh, both. Uh, I got That's a great question. In those days, they brought you along. You know what I'm saying? It's like they didn't just throw you into storylines or sink or swim. They would, like, sort of... They just bleed you in slowly. Um, we used to call them coffee scenes, where basically they'd introduce you to. They would introduce you in phases to the audience and sort of set you up against different people on the campus and see how you reacted, and then they start writing for that. And I just lucked into. I think part of uh, the luck that I had was was just was Marcy Walker. I mean, Marcy and 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 Kim and Larry were just so. I can't even tell you. I mean, I I did it. I did an appearance. God, I think I've been on the show for oh, not even a year. Was with um, Dorothy Lyman. I think Darnell was there, played Jesse, and and Kimmy, and and uh, played Jenny. And it was in Chicago. And I kid you not, for a guy that was sort of a wallflower growing up, it was like we almost started a riot on uh, f- I forgot the name of the street. It's sort of the commercial. We ended up going to a restaurant or doing something there. And I mean, the response just blew me away. I, I, I was calling, you know, my, my mom and my dad going, I, I literally felt like I was, I was Elvis for the day, you know? So they, they hooked me up with Marcy as God's vengeance um, uh, <laughs> for being mean to my sister. And, and Jennifer Bassey was just one of the sweetest people of all time. Um, funniest women I've ever worked with, just a brilliant comedian. Um, they gave us this thing where it's sort of like, and it's like, okay, sleeping with 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 mother and and daughter, but of course he, the wind up is that you know basically it's a woman who's in a very wealthy marriage, who's bored, and 
you know, the, <laughs> and the doc, they just happen to, and the guy is kind of a gigolo, doesn't want to get, doesn't want to work for a living, you know, would rather make money the easy way, you know, and these they they hook us into this three way thing and it just it, it exploded and I am still I, I I have to smile when I think about the audience reaction because when when guys sidle up to you on the subway you know and you're just sort of riding up and down Broadway on the one two or, th- or the one and three or whatever some guy sidles up to you goes and kind of under his breath goes you know I'm a lot like Ted <laughs> you kind. Of, <laughs> you kind of got to go, uh, that's not a good thing. <laughs> um, but it was, and the thing that made it just absolutely just the gravy on top was, was Jackie Babin. Jackie uh, was my producer. I just adored. She's been gone for years. Jackie goes all the way back to, I think, Streetcar Named Desire. She was uh, one of the producers. She worked in production on that when it was first on Broadway. But anyway, so Jackie allowed me to be funny because originally the character as God's vengeance on Liza was kind of just a jerk. And I, you know, I was never very cocky growing up. So that was kind of hard for me to do. So I kind of went to Jackie and said, um, can he be funny? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, uh, there are all these like sort of little there in those days specifically, I think Mar and I've talked about this once. Um, how the genesis, how, what all my children was like back in the day before, before uh, Agnes left versus now. And um, it was, there was still room for like some really broad comedy. We used to do all these fantasy episodes and stuff like that. And, and, and I, I said to Jackie, I said, you know, this guy, there's, there's certain parts of soap that lend itself to kind of sitcom stuff. And can I make him funny? You know, and she said, uh, yeah, well, just show us what you got. And it just exploded from there. I, I mean, I, I really had no idea how lucky I was until, uh, you know, 20 years later. I'm st- I still kind of marvel how, how stupid and <laughs> lucky I was at the same time. Because I was like, what, 23 at that time? You know, so it was a baby. Uh, did you ever think that the nickname Tad the Cad would just have such a life that it had? And still today, people can say it and know exactly no, what you're talking yeah, about? I, I, it's kind of, I've, I've grown into it. It used to bother me because I, I thought, you got to remember, back in the day, they, 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 don't, you guys remember the, the soap characters had these just amazing names, like Blade, you know what I mean? <laughs> yep. And like Blade and, you know, it's just these like really macho names. And here's this. You know, Tad. And it's like to me, I always thought Tad sounds like a snack. <laughs> you know, like like nacho nacho cheese Tad. You know, sugarless Tad. To me, to me, it sounds like something you it's made out of corn. You pull out a bag. You know what I mean? So, and uh, but I've grown to love it. I really have. I mean, um, oh God, it's just taken on a life of its own. Yeah, I, I, it's like because I went from what Tad the cat to Tad the dad. Right. Tad the granddad. Right. You know? I know. I feel like his caddishness, you know, kind of like ended more or less in, in the 80s. It's so unfair that that, that he kept being a, a cast dispersion. Yeah, as a yeah cad. that kind of that, that, that really cocky. Um, but then again, I mean, uh, I, and this is all credit to Agnes, too. And I can't stress this enough is in my estimation, the show really lost something when Agnes sold it off because what people forget is Pine Valley was the place she always wanted to grow up. She said, you know, she says in her book, she said when she was alive, Pine Valley was the place I wanted to live and I never got a chance to. So Pine Valley, the place was actually like a character. It was this small town where everybody left their doors, back doors open and it was all about who's sleeping with who and you know, who's doing what to who and who's winning. It's sort of like it's basic. It was basically a town about small town, a show about small town gossip. Basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so a character like Tad, you know, if you take a character like that and put him in a city, he's just a jerk. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's just he's like, I don't know. I don't want to swear on your show, but, you know, it's like he's he's just he's an idiot. You know what I mean? But in a small town, for some reason, set against a sort of our town type canvas where it's like, you know, the kid that just like, you know, uh, 
he's a cocky, he's lucky, he was an adopted kid, he's a bit of a troublemaker. You know, everybody sort of in a small town remembers the rebel in high school, you know what I mean? Rather than, you know, you take that character and you put him in a different place, he's just a jerk. And um, again, it was just pure luck that, you know, at that Agnes was really at the height of what she was doing and put me in this place. I was surrounded by absolutely brilliant people. I mean, just Dorothy Lyman. I remember, you know, she, she used to blow me away because uh, she was so good, so good at uh, at really broad comedy, but based in character. And I remember talking to her about it, and I, you know, I just was like, God, you know, we got one day, we got a couple hours to put this together. How do you get the courage to do it? And I remember her basically, in so many words, saying, "Honey, there ain't no point in having it in the store if you don't put it in the window." So she was the one that really sort of said, yeah, if you want to like, you want to, you want to, you know, you want to push out the walls on this character a little bit, do it. But again, I just, it was like literally pure luck. It was winning the lottery. We're both grinning because we're, 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 we're with you. So in addition to getting encouragement from Dorothy, who were your other early mentors uh, working on all my children? Oh God, there's so many. I want to hear a Kay Campbell story. Oh, she was wonderful. She was so sweet. Kay, as you, was Grant, basically. She was Tad's paramour. She was my hero. She kept me out of, uh, <laughs> kept me out of trouble. She was sort of the North Star of the, the Martin family. So what I used to say is the cameras are pointed in the wrong direction because what we would do, you know, the pressure of basically putting something that's high camp, that's high drama, that's melodrama on every day has its own stresses. So consequently, the, 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 the dress rehearsal was the funniest damn thing you have ever seen in your life because it was all of us knowing that if we were going to bust on or, or break somebody up or, or screw with somebody or make a comment on what we thought was bad writing at the time could go off. So one of the greatest things I used to love watching, I was telling this to Jessica Tuck the other day at, uh, uh, because she was on uh, in the studio, is we used to watch each other because you got a sense of who somebody was, but then we would watch their dress rehearsal and it was hysterical. Well, my first, one of my first days working with Kay and, and Ray McDonald, who I adored, mm-hmm. played my father, is they basically, Tad is in trouble. I'm in, <laughs> I'm in the back seat of the car of the family jalopy. Ray McDonald and Kay are basically, they've come to bail me out of something. I forgot what it was or like, and they're basic, and, and Kay is sticking up for Tad, leave the boy alone. Ray is like, wants to have his skin, blah, 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 blah. Well, during dress rehearsal, <laughs> Kay, Kay and Ray are swearing at each other like in a blue streak. <laughs> she's, just, she's like, oh, oh, leave the poor boy alone. You know, and Ray turns around and says, shut up, you old fat. You're always sticking up a little bastard. I hate him. I hate him. I'm going to leave him in a bus station. You know what I'm saying? Like, Take the clothes off. He doesn't deserve a damn thing. You know, you're no, shut up. I'm going to leave you. You're senile for God's sake. I'm going to leave you on. I'm I'm leaving you at the next flight. And they're going off at each other. Like, and I'm in the back and I'm this new kid on the show. I I had no idea what I got. I was laughing until I couldn't keep a straight face. And I, and, and the thing is raised to be so damn funny. And what happens is we go for notes and then we come back and we tape the show and I'd still be remembering how funny it was during the dress rehearsal and I'd just start laughing. And of course he had that sort of Mount Rushmore face and, you know, and he would sort of, he'd look at me like, what's wrong with you, young man, kind of thing. But that was my, that's my, my, uh, my Kay Campbell story because, you know, on the show she looked like she knit for a living and she was really, first off, she been in television for years and years and you should tell about doing live TV and stuff like that. She was one of the original characters on the show. And she was just, you know, like I say, I was surrounded by brilliant, generous, genius people. I mean, in those days we were still amazed that we could put 43, 44 minutes of videotape on the air every day. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, delivering the mail at a dead run. 
Um, well, tell me, is there a period of time on All My Children that you would consider like the golden age of Tad? That's a good question. There were two, I think. The golden age would be what you brought up, Stephanie. Mm-hmm. You know, was, uh, I think, the intro. You know, that, that whole uh, uh, Liza uh, Marion thing. Because it was sort of like, I had no, like I said, I was so lucky. I had no idea because, boy, what an intro in the show. And then the other second one, I'd say, would be sort of like the Tad and Dixie stuff. You know, when they first got us together because, and I mean, there are other people in Soaps that can speak to this. Because being part of a super couple is a blessing and a curse. Because you never know when you're going to catch lightning in a bottle and then the, the audience digs it. But then it has its sort of own gravitational pull. You know what I mean? And so... um the audience, they kind of work for the show. They keep coming back. They watch every day. They want to see what happens on Monday. So you never can get, if you're part of a super couple, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, uh, to pull away, to do something, to grow, to, to go in another direction. Um, but I think the, when Katie was, God, Katie was, she was so young. She was like 19 when we first, and there was, there was one show. And I, at that point, I don't think we were supposed to be together. I think there was, what was the name of that boutique, the dress boutique that Myrtle used to own? I can't remember the name of it. Oh, my God. We're both, we're both looking, looking at each other, other and it's torturing. There, was there, it there, not the boutique? She owned, there was a dress shop. And there was like, you know, there was, there was like the Glamorama. Right. Yeah. And there was like the country club. And there was like, uh, there was Foxy's. I mean, there, there were these set pieces that you always recognize. Well, anyway, Myrtle used to own this shop. I can't remember the name of it. And they, and they, and they basically put me in a scene with Katie because she was sort of a kid from the wrong side of the tracks. And I was this ne'er do well. And it was sort of like the two orphans meet each other, you know, on a, on a chance meeting. And they went and, and it just, it just happens. There's that like lightning moment and they go, okay, let's follow this. And the next thing you know, I mean, it was like, God, Katie, the, by the time the show went down, they brought her back from the dead a second time. And they, they didn't even bother trying to explain why. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, well, Tad and Dixie together forever. Got to send them off to the sunset together. It's like, you know, give the audience a break. But I just, you know, I, but I'd say those are the two. Those are the two sort of the, the glory days. Because then, then it becomes sort of a, a variation on a theme. And the thing I think that basically saved the character, Mara and I have talked about this too, is, uh, is the humor that Jackie let me bring in in the eighties because there were definitely people who were running the the ship, so to speak. Um, in those last 10 years that would just assume just have cut me adrift. And it was the audience that sort of uh, forbade it, you know? And I think that I, the, the one thing that I still had to offer the uh, audience was, uh, I think of this, uh, sort of innate sense of humor of the character. A uh, couple things. Number one, there would have been riots in the streets had they let Michael Knight go as Tad. I'm saying right now that would have been huge, like, front-page news on every newspaper. Number two, I'm here to tell you that the boutique was called The Boutique. I looked it up. The Boutique. Yep. There <laughs> and, you go. And uh, thirdly, I feel like you just saw Katie McLean at her birthday party. Is this correct? We saw I a tweet. I did. Could you please tell us about that and how long it had it been since you last saw her? Katie and I stay pretty, you know, we talk to each other, you know, once every six months, once a year or something like that. We mm-hmm. stay in pretty good because we've been, we're really close. I mean, she, we, we grew up, I, I had 10 years on her, but you know, we grew up around each other basically. And, um, we just watched each other evolve. I bet I mean, last time I saw Katie, we had lunch at a French restaurant on Ventura. Um, did oh, anyone know, recognize you together? Were they like, oh my God, Tad and Dixie are here in the restaurant? <laughs> no, no, no. That would have been kind of, it would have been very, very interesting to see. Um, uh, but a lot of years, a lot of water on the bridge. Yeah. But it's like, I, I'm stunned that it's been that long, but no, we've been, we've been, we've been through a lot. I've seen her go through a lot. I really am. I mean, Katie's an amazing person, amazing actress, but she, you know, she's the breadwinner for her family for a long time. She went through her mother, um, her mother's uh, illness and death and stuff. She, 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 she bore a lot on her shoulders at a very young age with a lot of dignity. So, and and she's, you know, she's, she's walked me as a friend through some pretty hairy times in my life too. So, I mean, it's, uh, I, I think there's something about, and also it's also something about the, um, 
it's hard to explain soap operas to some, even to somebody in the business, it's hard to explain it to somebody on the outside because it's just sort of, it's sort of a job that if you're not careful, can eat your life. It's very, it demands a lot, you know, it's constantly ongoing, but you never forget people. I mean, like another one that uh, like people that I'll never forget, it was so good to spend a little time on Young and the Restless because Peter Bergman was like, an icon, you know, mm-hmm. like Cliff and Nina. I remember being in a in an airport with Taylor Miller, and it was just <laughs> it's kind of funny to watch from, you know, the outside. She couldn't go to the bathroom without somebody like running up to her and getting an autograph. It's just, just amazing. So Peter, um, Palmer Cortland, uh, Jimmy Mitchell, uh, Taylor, and Peter—they were all massive on the show, and Peter was just. He was, God, such an amazing guy, you know, although even as a young, much younger man back then, you know, he was like, he, 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 uh, he was, he was a wonderful gossip. He's one of the best raconteurs I've ever known (laughs) to tell a mean story. And he would be like, you know, he loves the dish as he calls it. And he would sort of go up and he had all these like little quotes that he would throw at you. Like, you know, the Chinese proverbs, like a man with great dish, never eat alone kind of thing. <laughs> and, so, and sort of come up. And then, so, you know, he, then he peels off and he goes and he starts, you know, with Jack on the end of the wrestlers. And now he's just, I mean, you have to talk about an icon of daytime, mm-hmm. but I go back to, you know, I see him and it's just, I run up, throw my arms around him and stuff. And, and, uh, you know, cause I go back to the days when he was like the next dressing room over, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We had these tiny little dressing rooms on 67th street that we shared with somebody else. <laughs> I mean, these things were clawed. They were, they were small. Um, who and, were your uh, roommates? I, I had uh, Ray McDonald for a while. I had, um, and my longest running on 67th Street was David Canary, and who was, uh, boy, I tell you, that still brings, I don't know, that that is sad. That's to me. I mean, I, I, uh, he was something else, man. He was the most amazing actor and the most humble guy. And he was sort of like one of the foundations of that show for so long. And the fact that he's, he, he, he passed away so quickly after the show was over, just, I never get over it because if there was a guy that deserved to go fishing, it was David, because he was just, I mean, he was so good. I remember watching him do a scene. God, I think we were doing the AIDS storyline and his wife was named Cindy, Cindy. I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, he's acting out a story on split screen with Adam. So it's Stuart and Adam and Stuart is basically grieving the loss of his wife. And you got to remember that between that, these little fractions of time where they're breaking back and forth, there's like two hours where it's like, you know, he goes, he's got to do his make, redo his makeup, redo his hair, change his wardrobe, come back, run lines to get into character with the person that plays the back of his head. I forgot the name of the man that did it. But then, and then you edit together a scene that, wins an Emmy. I think he won three of them, four of them. And I remember seeing the scene at, seeing it again at the Emmys, looking up on the screen and they're saying, you know, nominees are, and then they show this scene. And I just, I knew before they, you know, opened the envelope, I said, he did it again. He won, he won again. I mean, the guy was, he was just magic, you know? Um, and I used to remember he used to torture me because way back in the day before they were even a thing, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had come out and, <laughs> and they were, uh, at that point, they were a, a graphic novel and they had these really, they had these really great stores. There was a store called Forbidden Planet, I think it was, mm-hmm. a comic, a, a store down, downtown in, in Manhattan and they had these plastic figurines, these little G.I. Joe thing. Now, I thought these were the coolest things and I didn't know anything about the, the Ninja Turtle, but I thought these were the coolest little figurines. <laughs> I bought four of them and yeah, I come in and like, you got to remember this, like these, these are really small dressing rooms, you know, and there's like one shelf and I put these things up there and you <laughs> to say, why do we need toys in our dressing room? <laughs> <laughs> like, you realize 
you know, this does not bode well for us. We have toys in our dressing room. <laughs> Back in the day, it was really, man, it was, it was really something, I have to say. I started in, uh, God, I was in New York City. I was 23 years old. You know, I just got fresh out of school. I was making a living doing what I wanted to do in a business that was still just, just going gangbusters. And I mean, I remember one of the big thrills of my life was meeting uh, Tony and then Jeannie. And then we got, Jeannie came over to do, I always felt like they were kind of cheated because she was, you gotta understand. I was in a, I was in a, um, in a, in a, not a dorm, a house in college. And there were four women and me and two guys. And this is at Wesleyan. And uh, Luke and Laura were going gangbusters. And I mean, half of the house didn't have classes on Friday. So the other half wouldn't have them on Monday. So we'd get together. And I remember the girls literally in the spring sunbathing and during uh, the general hospital, they had this beach umbrella that they sawed in half and they stuck it in the ground. So you would just see their butts leaning up. <laughs> they had this TV that they ran on a, an extension cord out from the kitchen window and they would basically sunbathe. They would do their backs on um, during uh, general hospital. So <laughs> That's amazing. And I and uh, and I I met Tony and I I I made this small gacking noise in the back of my throat because <laughs> I was like it was like meeting an icon and I just I, I was like I was like Cliff Flavin and Cheers ah 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 <laughs> and he came around we were doing something and he came around this table and he said he said Michael Michael how are you God you're doing so well and he was like my name is Tony and I just I was. Uh, Oh, anyway, that made my year, you know, and then we got uh, Jeannie and I can't remember the character, but I think we got Sierra. Jeannie for like a year and a half, two, two years. Sierra, um, Sierra Connor, Michael was the Sierra. Name. Yeah. And so for me, the greatest, she is one of the coolest, coolest ladies ever, ever amazing sense of humor, just a sweetheart and loved her husband, Jonathan. I was a big fan of him on Star Trek. I, meeting him at the studio was really, really fun. But Jeannie used to tell us, you know, because back in the, she would tell us stories about what it was like to be on General Hospital when it was like, you know, number one with a bullet and just the wild stuff that she'd been through as a, at a very, very early age, you know? And I, got, I have to say, one of the things, the, the thrills of my life lately is to to be able to walk into a, onto the studio floor with like people like Tristan and Ken and Fanola and just look at each other and you kind of grin going, yeah, you know, a whole lot of water under that bridge, but these people have, they're still kicking. They've seen a change. They're still going gangbusters. Ken actually goes, Ken was a, 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 a got a high school friend of my wife's back in, in Florida. You know, so I've known Ken Frazier. So it's kind of cool. I mean, there's 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 a very uh, there's a big familial aspect to it that I I kind of wish I could relate to people because it's a very small corner of the world. It really is. But and you know, there's that joke that people people on soaps don't die; they just change shows. You know. So, <laughs> well, lucky for us. Exactly. Exactly. Um. Okay. So I want to hear. Uh, your perspective, like it has, it's been eight years. We watched that final episode. Um, and so many of us remember it so well. You had that beautiful speech to deliver. But what do you remember, not as Tad, but as Michael, like of being there on the set that day, the last day of, of taping All My Children? Aggie. I just remember Aggie, Agnes. Mm-hmm. She was like, She's kind of, she was a real character. She's kind of hard to, you know, it's kind of a boy. I talked too much, so get to me on another 20 minutes on Agnes. But um, just Aggie. I think Aggie, uh, Aggie never forgave herself for, you know, that's not true. I can't say that. I think she was always saddened by selling the show because, again, to Agnes, Pine Valley was as much character as any one other, as any character she put on it. She knew the place. And I think that at that point in her life, you know, she was saying goodbye to like one of her children, you know, and she wrote that by that. Thank you for mentioning that wonderful, wonderful speech. That was, um, I always call it like the friends, neighbors, family speech. Right. And I was known to change a couple words here and there and stuff. And there wasn't one syllable in that, in that it was just so beautifully written. And I memorized it. And like, it took like, four minutes to memorize. It was that 
well written. And I walked up to her. There was this huge cake we had and stuff. And I went, Aggie, you wrote this. Didn't this was you? This wasn't one of the dial. I mean, you didn't pass this off. This was you. And she said, Yep. You know, it's it. That's my farewell. And um, wow. she was uh, Agnes was <clears throat> the closest thing to God that we ever saw because then she was. I remember feeling so protected, so loved because I met, we were owned by Cap Cities, Warren Buffett. And Agnes brought Warren Buffett into the studio to introduce him around, to show you what they did. And uh, Agnes was the size of the Lucky Charms elf. You know what I mean? She was like, she, she literally looked, she was so tiny, she looked like she jumped off a box, front of the boxes. <laughs> um, and she introduced me to Warren Buffett, and I, 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 I didn't know what to say. She goes, now, this is Michael. This young man is Michael. He plays Tad on our show, blah, blah, blah. And Tad's been this and that, and he's sort of the bad boy in the show. And she reached up in front of Warren Buffett, and she pinched me on both cheeks. And she goes, and you're so good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just sat there. I felt like a trained poodle. I didn't know what to do. But she... See, in those days, Aggie just had, you know, Aggie had a, she had a sense of where things should go and, you know, how long it should take to get there. And, you know, she and Bill Bell, you know, they, 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 they came up under Irma, you know, Irma Phillips and radio, and they were the pioneers that created like 90% of the daytime. And you got to remember these two people had their hands in, you know, 80% of, of what at one point was 14 shows on the air. You know, and they were masters. They were just master, master craftsmen at what they did. And so that last day in Glendale, or Burbank, Glendale, I remember walking up to, to Aggie and just hugging her and saying, Aggie, thank you for my life, you know. And that's just, it's, uh, it was really, really bittersweet. It really was. I kind of wonder, boy, I tell you. I wonder if Aggie had stayed. I don't, I, and I think she earned the right. She earned, as I say, she earned the right to go fishing. But I wonder if, um, if she had not bowed out of the creative aspect of the show, if we wouldn't have had another few years. Because I, I definitely think that there were people, and I understood that there were reasons for it because, you know, the market was changing, the world was changing, production was changing. You know, uh, there were, there were you know, we, we had to adapt or die. But I, I definitely think there were some people running the show at the end that maybe weren't as inspired as they could have been, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, eight years later, there's still a passionate fan base who would love to see this show back tomorrow. You know, what does it mean to you that it, it's had such an impact on so many people and so many fans? I, I, I think there's part of there's a whole cultural thing going on in, you know, in uh in our, in our whole, in our, in our world, you know? And I think that's, that, that's kind of that wonderful, that's like, that, that's, that, that's that, uh, that, that vision that Aggie always had, which was like, Pine Valley's a place you wanted to live when you were a kid, you know? It's just like, everything felt safe. A lot of really bad stuff happened, but you knew it was all going to be okay. You know, it's a place where people left their back doors open at night. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot, the world is changing. Like, Mara, did you ask me about, like, was it you that asked me about uh, uh, social media? Asked you about social media. Did you, you? I was like, somebody asked me about social media. Like, why are you not on social media? And I have to say, I, I'm, a product, I'm a product of my age. I mean, I don't get it. It frightens me. You know what I mean? It's just like, uh, okay, email. I'm good on email. That was my generation. You know, Twitter, I, I just, I still don't get it. You know, and I think that 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 devoted fan base, like having that real love of my children, like I say, you never forget where you were or what was going on in your life when you see one of us, because we take us right back. And there's a kind of that wonderful safety, kind of very beautiful, nostalgic feeling about what the what, I mean, the show, what the show was, the people on it, how it was produced, you know, its place in the lineup its place in the world. I mean, you know, anyway, I'll shut up. <laughs> well, um, after all my children, you did join Young and the Restless. So what are the highlights of your run as Simon Neville? Um, Eileen. Mm -hmm. I, I loved Eileen. Eileen cracked me up. 
Um, uh, Eric, I didn't know what to expect. I really, you know, the highlights were, and also uh, Television City. I'd never worked in a, because you got to understand, in, in New York, we worked in a studio, but it was, you know, it was uh, on our, in our building and towards the end, it was all my children, it was the view. But, you know, it was dedicated to basically one thing. CBS uh, Television City was a proper television studio. And like, I remember coming out of my dressing room for the day and, and turning to the, the right, and there's a picture of All in the Family on the wall, you know? Or uh, like these pictures of uh, Carol, the Carol Burnett Show. You know, and it's sort of like it was it was like walking around a, a living piece of history. It was really, really cool. But also the show itself was just um, the people on it were so lovely. And I didn't know what to expect because you each each show has got its own kind of character. It's got its own personality. And um, Melody um, and Catherine, go away. Melody was in my wedding, for God's sake. She was one of the uh, bridesmaids. Wow. Um, so there were people like Peter and I went back, like I say, you know, I, I can't say enough about what a gentleman Peter Bergman is. What a great, great guy. Um, but Eileen was hysterical. I loved working with Eileen. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. She's, she is a real character. And she, you know, she gave me, I, I do feel I dropped the ball a little bit because Initially, when they hired me, it was it was he was he was a character. It was kind of hard to explain. It was like, God, poor Kristoff. That's another thing working with Kristoff. Um, so many people. You understand, it's a very small industry. So basically, we cross pollinate. So I knew a lot of people from different places in that uh, in that show. Eileen, I dropped the ball because initially he was a character role. I was supposed to come in. He was supposed to be sort of like this bizarre medical genius that somehow saved Kristoff's wife from this or that and the other thing. And they bled into that. Um, they bled into it because Eileen, uh, the, her, her character was, uh, was sick and it was all, I was involved in getting her well and stuff like that. But I realized too late that a better job would have been to be a, uh, a love interest for her. So Neville is kind of like a nerd. Do you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like hard to, to take somebody who's just drop dead like Eileen and sort of hook her up to this sort of lab poodle, which is sort of what Neville was. I wish had I known that the character might've had legs that I played him more straight rather than sort of over the top on a character basis. Mm-hmm. But I'd say the, the, I, I had a blast working with um, Eileen that whole, that, because it was a, I was a very distinct little corner of the show. So most of the stuff I did um, was with Eileen. And it was fun too, because, you know, she and Peter were, uh, were family. So I got to do that. I never got to work with Eric. And I, I, I was always really kind of sorry about that because Eric is hysterical. He's wonderful. And he's, He's an icon. He's another one. He's like David Canary. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like he is the Mount Rushmore of daytime. And I would have wanted to be on. I would have wanted to share the screen with him just once. I would have wanted that, too. Ditto. Um, all right. So let's let's get into GH a little bit. Now, I know uh, from talking to you that you watched the show, you familiarized yourself with it a bit before you started working on it. Who are the the folks that jumped out to you as like characters or actors that you really hoped you would get to cross paths with uh, on screen? Oh, that's a good question. Well, on a purely selfish basis, personal basis, um, Patrick, Finola, Maurice, Laura, because I have history with them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I go back, Maurice and I go back to 88 and he's just grown into this just, I mean, he's, a powerhouse. I always love to brag on him because I always say that people, most people don't know about is Maurice is a card carrying member of the actor's studio. And if you know how hard it is to get in the actor's studio, it's no joke, you know? And, um, there's, it, there's a reason he is who he is. I mean, he is like Sonny is that show, you know? Um, uh, he scares me a little bit because if you cross, you know, if you cross his character, you end up in a doggy bag in Des Moines, you know what I mean? So, um, I would not be. That's like being married to Susan Lucci. You know, you're, you're not destined <laughs> to be around for too long. Um, 
uh, Fanola and I go way back years and years and years. Um, Laura, I knew when she was just, again, just become this amazing actress. Just, I just loved, I just love watching her and Maurice tear it up on, on, on the screen. I really do. They had, they, they, I was watching them have a fight on the show in the kitchen set. And the one thing I couldn't tear myself away is why they have a bowl full of dribbles on in the front. Oh, that's <laughs> you're not the most burning only, question. Yeah, you are, you have, are, are in good why why is there a bowl full of tribbles in front of them? We don't um, know. Every but, fan uh, writes in about that, just Michael, so you know. Michael, the real question is, why haven't you found out the answer to that? You're on You're that there. set. Go I, try I, someone, someone down. I, 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 I haven't been around long enough. But in terms of, so, and and um, Patrick is one of my oldest, dearest friends. Uh, I'd love to work with Rebecca. I have to say, they're all, it's, it's, it's an amazing, it really is an amazing cast. One of like the, one of the, the weird things about the fact that there are only four shows now, it's almost like they cut away a lot of the fat in the industry. I don't know how to explain it. So people are really, really good at what they do. Um, I already got to selfishly. I hope I get to do more of it because he is um, brilliant is getting to work with Roger was really fun because um, he's just, he's, he means he's, he's a devoted character actor on daytime. It's like, that's a very unique thing. Um, I remember uh, Catherine coming home because Catherine, when we were married, was a big soap opera maven. She knew everybody. She knew it. like she she watched the show. She was really she studied it. She loved the, the medium. And I remember her coming home in like '96 because I we I remember we were in our second apartment on 79th Street, Broadway. She said, "There is a kid." And I mean, kid, he was at that point, I think he was in his mid twenties um, on one life to live, who was just tearing it up. I mean, you have to watch this kid. And again, I mean, he was a bad boy and she said, they're watch this. They're going to screw it up. He's a coach. He's a, I think it was Todd, Todd Manning there. You know, he's a, he is, he's a powerhouse actor and, but they're going to try to turn him into a good guy and, you know, watch what happens kind of thing. And so I've been, a, I've known of and been a, 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 a fan of Rogers for just centuries. So, I mean, it was really, really wonderful. It's been wonderful to, to be on set with him and do some stuff. Um, I love on a professional level, I'd love to work with Michael Easton. I think um, Michael Easton is like one of those guys that's just, you never catch him acting ever. I mean, he's just absolutely silky he's seamless he's got this just innate dignity to everything i've ever seen him do and i remember god i my mom i i include watching him play a vampire you know years ago <laughs> on poor child poor charles so um i mean i this is a hard answer uh, uh, i'm sorry this is uh, stephanie this is a hard question for me to answer because i mean there's so many people i mean you could throw a dart i'd be happy i hope i get to cross paths with uh with hannah devane because you know, she's a big deal. But then there are other people on the show that I think that I don't know that I haven't worked with that I think are doing such incredible work. I love Danelle Curtis. Mm -hmm. I love his stuff. I think he's brilliant. The kids are wonderful. Uh, Cameron, Joss, I think, you know, these are, it's a really, really good cast of people. I'd be lucky to work with anybody at this point, really. Who am I kidding? <laughs> well, Michael, we... We were not the only ones with questions for you. Um, so we actually reached out to a few of your friends, and they had a few things that they wanted to ask. So the first question that we have for you here comes from your friend Patrick, who fans know as James Patrick Stewart. Um, well, I know his big nose, yes. You know his big nose. Okay. He wants big to nose. know, between you and General Hospital's James Patrick Stewart, who's a better chess player? Give examples. Oh. Be specific. <laughs> That is so mean. Oh, God, that's so mean. He is. He just, he just absolutely, we ended up, Patrick, this is a long story. Patrick ended up going on my honeymoon. I don't know how to explain it other than uh, Catherine and I, uh, uh, we got married, didn't have a lot of two, two dimes to rub together. We go back to New York. It's like, okay, terrific. We're going to, um, we, after we you know collected the weed, were settled. I was on the show. I don't think she was on Loving yet. We were going to, maybe she was, we were going to um, take a honeymoon that we never took. So it was, it, it was a first class 
all expenses paid kind of thing, you know, first uh, down to four seasons on. At that point, Nevis doesn't exist anymore. It's taken out by a hurricane, unfortunately. Beautiful, beautiful place. So I, I had to cancel it twice. I mean, like, I think she got a show she couldn't get away from, but might have been loving. And then she ended up, the next year came around, she was on, she was doing Fontaine on Broadway. She was doing Nevis. So at that point, the, the sort of said, you're going to lose your pot. Like, you know, we're sorry. I mean, it's been, it's been 12 months. You got to walk away from it. You got to eat it. So I said, okay, I'm going to do that. So I called Patrick and I said, do you want to go on my honeymoon? <laughs> he was like, what's the catch? You know what I mean? He's like, I said, no catch. I just, like, I don't want to blow the money. Come on. So we went down and it was, you know, a small island, not a lot to do. Um, he insisted on running around the resort in a speedo, which, which I was like, I was just wondering what all of the, all of the fans on the island thought, you know, like Tad Crink comes down with his boy toy <laughs> and we would sit and play chess. Um, there was like a game room and Patrick was like, oh, let's, let's, what do you think? You want to play chess? And at this point I had no idea knowing he's, he's really good. And he just, would just absolutely mop the floor with me, but he kept, I, and I was just playing again and again and again and again. And it got to the point where I was just like, I knocked the board over. I got so frustrated. So short answer is he is by far. <laughs> well, our other press inquiry comes from Rebecca Buddig, uh, as listeners yeah. know, as GH is Hayden. She would like to know, how do you get your hair so thick and lustrous? She is like, okay, I have to say that Rebecca is one of the people responsible for Patrick, Rebecca Patrick um, and my friend Lindsay Harrison were responsible for me even appearing on, on General Hospital because I, like I said, I wanted to work and I needed to work. And so I reached out to them and I said, what do you, and would I be out of bounds to reach out to Frank, to write Frank an email and go, hey man, do you want to do some stunt casting? Look, Michael Knight's still alive. Do you want to, you know? put him in, um, in Port Charles. And, um, so Rebecca is largely responsible for me. And she was like, absolutely do it. You know, got nothing to lose. So she's responsible, um, for me being on the show. And this is kind of a, a, a running thing with, uh, she and I are also in an acting lab together. We, we study both study under just a brilliant, brilliant teacher by the name of Lee Kilton Smith, who's here in Los Angeles. It's just genius. And we do character work. And most people don't. I wish people could see Rebecca do character work because she really is absolutely just a genius. Well, unfortunately, one of the, one of the shots that my acting teacher always you know, throws at me is my hair because I have soap hair. I'm just cursed <laughs> with soap hair. And I'm glad to have it. I really have it. It's on my head. I don't care what color it is. You know, there's still enough up there to, to, to play with. So, um, but she said, like, every time you do a character, you can't get it away. I mean, I, the, the running joke in my acting class is I looked like Colonel Sanders and Kenny Rogers had a baby. So. <laughs> well, that's a blessing. I would agree. I would agree. Um, yeah. So uh, it, we have not seen that much of, of Martin Gray, your new uh, character, but I'm obsessed with him. And I want to know if you're open to, like, doing more than uh, maybe just the initial few episodes that you were slated to do, like give a girl some hope. Absolutely. Here. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I think it sort of surprised everybody. Again, all credit goes to Frank and Dan and Chris because they, I was the one who reached out to them and said, what do you, what do you think? And uh, Frank's response is Frank. I've known, God, I've known Frank for 25, not 30 years. I'm not quite sure. Frank knows this business. Like, I mean, there's a reason, the general hospital saw on the show because Frank knows I think from the ground up, he can do anything. He can edit, he can write, he's a brilliant director. Frank cannot, Frank, one thing I know about him is guys will never promise anything he can't deliver. So I reached out to him and I go, stunt casting, what do you think? He goes, I have a lawyer. This guy, this is, it's an encapsulated thing. What do you think? I mean, I went to Dan and Chris and they go, yeah, yeah, bring Michael to do it. And it was, I think it was at that point, six to eight episodes. It was encapsulated. It was a, it was just an arc. Um, and we sort of got to that place. And then uh, Frank came back and said, do you want to, there's a chance that we, we can see an avenue 
of bleeding him into these these other two possible stories. What do you think? And I was like, hell yeah, yeah. So absolutely. I, I, if they want me, you can be sure I'll be there. <laughs> awesome. Well, we certainly hope to see more of you. And we thank you so much for joining us today and telling I, such great I, stories. I have to apologize. I, I know I'm, I'm cursed, actually. I've got the chatty gene. It comes from my grandmother. I apologize if I'm long-winded. No, you are not. We could talk to you all day. Absolutely. <laughs> we only scratch the surface, seriously. <laughs> it's so but true. thank you so much, and we hope to talk to you soon. God bless you guys. Thanks a lot. Thank right, you, have Michael. Have a great day. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Michael Knight for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Podcast.